0: Uh, uh, here is testament to that. Uh, Now, Mick Crumplin is a fellow of this college. He trained at the Middlesex uh, Hospital, uh, where I was also a student, and I think we overlapped uh, by a short uh, period. He qualified in 1965 and won two surgical prizes, the Lyle Gold Medal uh, at medical school (coughs) and the Beagley Prize in the membership exam which we had at that time of this College uh, of Surgeons, making a a formal member of this college. He then became a fellow in 1969 by examination and trained again at the Middlesex Hospital uh, as a surgeon, where we once more overlapped. Uh, He then went off to the West Midlands where he got his senior registrar job and ultimately after a period of training in the same sort of environment as the (coughs) president of our college, John Black, he uh, obtained a consultant appointment at uh, Wrexham Mylor Hospital in North Wales. Now, it's all very well just turning up into a hospital and taking over a practice that's there. That's expected of you. But it's a completely different thing to then develop a technique uh, and to develop a discipline and build on it and leave a legacy for others to follow. And that's exactly what Nick Crumplin did. He set up a a very good gastroesophageal unit, uh, which now, at this time, serves the whole of North Wales. And and that's a very good legacy to leave behind. Throughout his career, however, he's also had a tremendous interest in military matters, military surgery, uh, and military conflicts in general. And he can give you a lecture at a drop of a hat on Nelson, on (laughs) Wellington, or Napoleon. And leave aside Guthrie and Larrier and all the other uh, notables. He lectures widely on the Peninsula uh, and Napoleonic Wars, and he's published three books uh, on the surgical aspects of the war. One of the things that I've always found, we belong to the same travel club, and uh, when we travel through Europe, uh, it, it, normally you'll find there's a guide at the front of the coach telling you what to expect. And there's usually a mick at the back telling you what to look out for. <laughs> because along this little lane went the 34th fourth of foot or something like that. So he really has got the ability. Not only that, he can tell you practically what the individual soldier or sailor had for breakfast and what they felt like on the end <coughs> of the battle. He really gets under the skin. And I don't know how many of you watched recently the master and commander on television and saw that lovely sequence uh, when the... Uh, Doctor on the, sh- the surgeon on the ship was shot at uh, and got a bullet lodged in his uh, abdomen and he then had the operation done uh, using a mirror and Mick was the expert on higher hand to describe this incident and it wouldn't have been remarkable but for the fact that when we were in China in two thousand and seven we came across a pediatric surgeon who had been sent away doing the uh, Mao uh, revolution when they were all sent out of the Red folk period and this chap was a professor of surgery and he was made into a janitor and he developed symptoms that suggested he might have a stomach cancer and he got his assistant at the time to operate on him the assistant was terrified and said don't worry, I'll be looking in the mirror and I'll tell you what to do <laughs> And he it's a privilege, really, to uh, front this up, Mick, uh, and I, I'm really going to enjoy hearing what you have to say. The subject today is George Guthrie, probably the most famous military surgeon this college has produced. Guthrie was the youngest member ever to be admitted to the college, and the first to be made president of the college on three occasions. Guthrie's wars, which you will find in the library, <laughs> brought my copy, but you might even get in to sign one if you uh, can <coughs> purchase one before you go. Um, it's an excellent book, which I would commend to you. But today, you are going to hear from the author himself about George Guthrie and the others who helped to keep our casualty figures down during six grueling years of the Peninsula war. Mick Rumford. Thanks. Thank you.
1: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you can all hear, and Sir Bernard, thank you very much for your kind introduction, and thank you for coming this afternoon. I'd like to relate to you a little summary and story of the life of one of Britain's great medical heroes, a forgotten hero, I think. Certainly one of the brightest stars in British surgical firmament, and of course this college's reputation is enhanced by such a man. Now. Sir Anthony Bowlby, who became president in 1920, did a resume of military surgery at the end of the first cataclysmic war against Germany. And he rightly pointed out that although Hunter had laid some basic and fairly primitive sensible tenets of military surgical warfare, they needed building on, and until the advent of anaesthesia and particularly antisepsis, little more progress would be made uh, until uh, anaesthesia and antisepsis arrived. And it was up to people with their disciples, leaders like Baron Lare and George Guthrie in England, to promulgate the development of surgery. Well, here is a picture of uh, George Guthrie. On the left, a portrait by Henry Room, which is in this college. And on the right is a daguerreotype we've recently unearthed, taken about five years before his death, one of the few photos of a surgeon who actually fought against uh, Bonaparte's men. And I think you can see in his face a kindliness, a robustness, and a committed face, and also someone who has immense integrity, and I think that was his greatest tribute, really. Born on the 1st of May, 1785, of Celtic background, certainly he had controversial religious forebears, many of whom paid the ultimate price from their efforts, His great-grandfather had fought for William of Orange, and Guthrie's father became a wealthy man when he took over a medical supplies business from Guthrie's uncle, who was a a naval surgeon. Father certainly had money, but very little came Guthrie's way. Most of it went to his sister. So Guthrie was going to have to make his own way in life. Now, I'm sure, and I'm sorry if I'm telling a lot of people in this room how people were trained in these days, but after leaving school at the age of 15 variety of schools you could if your parents could afford it join a master to become an indentured apprentice which would last about five years then you would become a ward walking pupil or plaster man or house surgeon till you took an examination around 22 and then you were launched into civil or military surgery and you obviously had a great deal to learn Guthrie was different he went to a private school and a certain emigre teacher called Noel Um, French émigré, taught him science and languages and the rudiments of navigation and and so forth and dead reckoning. But towards the age of 13, Guthrie had a nasty accident and a military surgeon called John Rush, who was inspector of hospitals uh, on the army medical board, uh, took a liking to him and said, you will make a good military surgeon, approach the family. And so Guthrie was actually apprenticed at 13 uh, for two years only, to Dr. Hooper of the Marylebone Dispensary, a well known physician and author, and Mr. Phillips, a well known uh, Royal and Society surgeon. And the fees for these were about £45 pounds per annum. And he became a, uh, rather than becoming a pupil, as uh, civilian trainees did, he became an acting hospital mate at the York Hospital, which is in Chelsea, not far. Uh, ...from the uh, Chelsea Hospital today. Unpaid and unqualified as an acting hospital mate. Well, um, actually... Uh, ...Keat was Director Gen- uh, Surgeon General of the Army... ...and he said we can't have unqualified men working in hospital. So Guthrie and his four colleagues decided to resign. But then Guthrie had second thoughts and went back and said... ...I'll sit the examination at the College of Surgeons of London... ...because... Uh, there's no age limit. There became an age, uh, lower age limit in two years' time. But he sat the examination at age 15, and that uh, he was appointed assistant surgeon, junior surgeon, to the Worcestershire Regiment, uh, His Majesty's Worcestershire Regiment, the 29th Foot, at the age of 16 years old. The commanding officer, incidentally, of that battalion was 22. During the course of his um, apprenticeship, and service at the York, he attended the Windmill School of Anatomy, you know this picture well, I'm sure, and looked at uh, dissection and uh, rehearsal operations. There were, of course, very few cadavers to be had from executed criminals, maybe 50 to 100 in the whole of Great Britain each year. So the reprehensible but necessary practice of grave robbing had to be practiced, mainly delivering cadavers to extramural schools. What other teaching methods would Guthrie have looked at? Well, possibly a wooden skull here of about the right time for the practice of trepanation. Here we have a wax model by Sir Charles Bell showing the operation of herniotomy for a strangulated and irreducible inguinal hernia. Osteological specimens obviously lasted. Here, two musket ball injuries. And then there were um, Charles Bell's famous paintings, which he used for teaching, John Hunter's illustrations on venereal disease, here showing a stricture in the urethra, and uh, an illustration, a more modern one, in about 1850 from one of Guthrie's publications. When he got to the York Hospital at the age of 15, he was treating the evacuee soldiers and wounded and sick men from the Helder expedition. And this was the year, of course, of the foundation uh, of this particular building. And he had 250 people to help with at the York Hospital and it's very difficult to show you what a ward would have looked like then. This is the only extant picture I know of showing a ward uh, during these times with wooden floors and fires and nursing staff and the army certainly had female nurses who were paid. And here we are sitting in this room here in the Royal College of Surgeons of London and just a, a couple of months before his birthday Guthrie sat in front of Surgeon General Keats and Mr. Carson. He was particularly examined by those two and, pay, and, and passed creditably. Purely an oral exam, we have no records of quality of examination at these times. But Hooper, one of the um, Guthrie's um, masters, actually wrote a little crib book. And we can get some idea of the sort of questions uh, before examination. Describe the spine. Uh, describe the shoulder blade how do you distinguish a dorsal vertebra from the rest? And in pathology, what are the terminations of inflammatory disease? Formation of pus, death of a part, or resolution? What is the treatment of gunshot wounds? And the first thing you do is decide whether to amputate or not. These are very simple, practical instructions. Guthrie would have been given an identical certificate, this is held at this college, to be assistant surgeon to a regiment. And these are the Court of Examiner's Signature. Interesting to see that two of them were missing from Guthrie's exam. The situation of a military surgeon is more important than any other, wrote John Bell, that is Charles Bell's brother, a very eminent and expert practical surgeon in Edinburgh. And he was making a plea for an increase in quality of training of surgeons at this time. But he makes the point that surgeons were very much isolated often at a young age, which was a pretty scary for them. And the kind of battlefield scenes is not like Hellman today. It is a very crowded, unpleasant area. Here is a medical officer amongst this crowd of wounded and dead men. Very difficult to provide adequate first aid and evacuation. Anyway, Guthrie joins the 29th of Foot, the Worcestershire Regiment, and he would be a junior to go into battle. Uh, He'd be sent in by the regimental surgeon while the more senior men stayed back. But they were destined for peacetime service, and they were posted the 29th to Halifax, where the regiment in the 1740s had actually laid out the citadel here and the town. But they came back to serve a very peaceful garrison duty uh, during the war against the French. And this was an important naval base, obviously, and it was a very uneventful five years that Guthrie spent there. He writes of treating drunken soldiers and doing obstetric and pediatric, uh, dealing with pediatric and obstetric issues, but the city and the regiment got on very well. While there, he married the uh, governor of uh, uh, New England uh, and uh, his daughter, and paid £100 for the certificate which in today's money is £6,000. So I'm not sure who footed that bill, but it was £100 to get married. That happened in July uh, 1806. Um, In 1807, the regiment was homeward bound, uh, and uh, on the ship bound home, uh, the transport that Guthrie was on, he narrowly uh, avoided wreckage uh, near St Catherine's Bay on the Isle of Wight. But Guthrie's skills in navigation told the master that they were far too near to the rocky shore and he pulled the ship off just in time uh, really showing what a polymath this man was having got home to Britain safely the regiment then joined a force under General Brent Spencer to go into the Mediterranean and reduce the port of Cueta which was opposite Gibraltar we were still at war with Spain but only for another two months and the Dominica the uh, transport that Guthrie was on came adrift in the middle of the night. Guthrie sensed it, the watch was asleep, they drifted in onto the Spanish shore and they were fired at by Spanish guns, but no damage was done. Guthrie had just in time saved yet another ship. But then the Spanish um, declared war against France uh, because King Joseph had been put on the throne, uh, Napoleon's brother, and Sir Arthur Wellesley, well-trained and rehearsed in India, was to lead a force at the, uh, at the begging of, um, really, Portugal to, to get um, Britain into the war, to chase the French out of Portugal, because Portugal were one of our, uh, was one of our oldest allies. So he arrives with 10,000 men, and Brent Spencer's force comes up, and they land here on the west coast of Portugal, uh, not far from Obidos in a little place called Rolisa. Lisbon is here. And their objective is to defeat the French and take Lisbon and get the French out of Portugal. Well, um, Brent Spencer's force with Guthrie landed later uh, in the landings so that he was um, uh, landed on the 8th of August. And most uh, surgeons carried one orderly with them and a couple of mules and panniers. And Guthrie had two orderlies because each only had one arm. Guthrie had amputated the arm of each of them in Halifax, but he said they worked together, each with one arm, better than two men with two arms, and he got ashore with minimal equipment. All the mules had been sold, so he was starting off in rather a powerless condition. If we ascend a hill, uh, this is from the French view, and look at um, Wellesley's uh, army approaching the heights of Rolisa, there would be Guthrie somewhere marching seven paces behind the colour, And here we have the heights of Rolisa above a little village called Columbira, and this is the defile up which the 29th and Guthrie advance. It's very steep and difficult, and unfortunately, Colonel Lake, son of General Lake, a great friend of Wellesley's, led the advance up that hill prematurely. And the regiment was commanded, therefore, by this man, who was beautifully dressed, immaculate, a a good officer, but he'd misread the commands and up the regiment went. And they found themselves under fire both on fire and front by two French battalions and they were cut to pieces. Lake was killed and uh, there were a great deal of other casualties. In fact there were 118 wounded for Guthrie, 34 killed and some taken prisoner. Um, this is incidentally the sort of pannier that's put astride a, a, a mule to take surgical equipment but Guthrie didn't have his with him. So he had a lot of wounded men and friends to look after. And he was quite distressed about what he saw. Remember, this was his first experience of battle. This was the first battle of the Peninsular War. Lake died fairly quickly, and Sergeant Richards of the 29th, standing over Lake, uh, received 17 wounds and expired as Guthrie gave him a drink of water. And then Guthrie set about to treat minimal casualties like this subcutaneous embedded musket ball to limbs shattered by round shot. There's very little you can do on the spot. You can give water, you can bind wounds and stop bleeding, and you can close wounds with adhesive tape. Sticky tapes were used then to close wounds, and also sutures. Um, but then you had to get down to the business of uh, treating the men who required your more uh, in-depth services. And they, Guthrie went back uh, along the hill after the French had retreated and went to another village called Zambugira, and he set up a dressing station and this is a, a set owned by this college which was used at the Battle of Waterloo and you can see the sort of sheer steel instruments with organic handles which were used to trefine, tidy up wounds and perform limb removal. Now I apologise for the slightly graphic nature of some of these pictures to those of you who are not used to it but obviously amputation was performed under strict tourniquet control and the soft tissues and bone were divided and then vessels were taken up the wounds were closed and the threads left long to be removed later. And Guthrie had several of these to do, using a variety of instruments. Probably these two are the typical instruments of the period. This is a French bow saw and a British tenon saw. Uh, and these instruments would be used to perform the surgery. But during one of these operations, the tourniquet strap broke and Guthrie was covered in blood. And he quickly put his fingers onto the femoral artery. And from that day forth, whenever he could avoid using a tourniquet, he did. He found in a shocked patient, digital vascular control was very adequate during surgery. And he had his assistant just press on the main artery. He also noted that arteries that were near the passage of a bullet could be damaged so much, even though they weren't divided, by the damage to the inside of the vessel. And he sent specimens home to his old friend and master, Dr. Hooper, for preservation. This is the memorial to uh, Colonel Lake. It's rather a sad, lovely little memorial. It's recently been restored on the heights of Rolisa. And Guthrie disappeared down this path to Sambugira with his men. He worked for three days, sending some men back to the hospital ship Asia and Obidos north. And he then advanced down uh, on the last day, 20th, before the Battle of vamiro which was also fought on the west coast of Portugal. The Royal Naval support was there, and Wellesley uh, then fought against Marshal Juno and General de la Borde. It was a more difficult battle than the last, where we had superior numbers, but Guthrie's battalion only had 12 wounded men. They took a critical role at the end of the battle, and Guthrie himself was shot across both calves with a lead musket ball. And he tended to those 12 wounded, and this is the church in the village there, which uh, was the dressing station where all the operations took place. There was an outbreak of dysentery and unwellness amongst the English army, and as they advanced victoriously down to Lisbon, General uh, Junot, uh, Marshal Junot here, was ordered to be evacuated under terms of a treaty with his booty, with their arms, in British ships, back to France and it was not well appreciated by the British government and all the top generals including Wellesley were called home to be taken to task for this issue after the convention of Sintra. The Worcestershire Regiment was shattered by disease and battle casualties and they remained in Lisbon. But of course the army didn't remain in Lisbon, it fell to the command of Sir John Moore And with Sir David Baird, they were to advance to Valladolid into North Spain and, with uh, the the Spanish, chase the French troops out of Portugal. Unfortunately, the only incursion by Bonaparte with a massive army chased the English leopard back into the sea at La Coruña, where John Moore met an unfortunate end and died. Uh, However, the English army, sick as it was, was returned to Britain, and it wasn't long before later that year that Wellesley, having been exonerated in the Convention of Sintra Inquiry, came back and he realised that the French had invaded Portugal again, this time by Marshal Soult, who'd gone to Porto on the Douro. And he took a force from Lisbon and new troops up to the Douro, and in May he he performed the passage of the Douro, right under a convent, under the very eyes of Soult's men. Having commandeered some boats from the opposite bank, further down the river, in the actual near the port lodges, Guthrie hailed a, uh, a boatsman in in good Portuguese. He learnt uh, both Spanish and Portuguese, and he was the first mounted officer to cross the Duro. But he had become detached from his regiment, which was not a good idea. He saw a good mule in the abandoned town the French had left, so he pinched the best mule he could find for obvious reasons and joined up with a infantry unit the 16th Portuguese and they were all dressed like Frenchmen and as Guthrie approached his regiment uh, the regiment brought up its muskets to the present to shoot at this advancing French force actually they were Portuguese and Guthrie threw open his grey watch coat showed them his red coat and somebody shouted uh, from the troops shooting at them it's the doctor and the Portuguese and muskets were lowered so once more Guthrie had saved the day Down in a little ravine, as he was progressing towards his regiment, he saw a gun being frantically towed off by mules, a French gun, and he ran down waving his sword, captured the gun, and the French ran off. So he pinched another mule and presented the gun to his commanding officer, who was most amused that a surgeon had captured a piece of ordnance. A few months later, there was another threat to us in Portugal, and that was uh, Marshal Victor and uh, Joseph Bonaparte advancing with a large force from Madrid. And we met them on a a little portina brook here, the little rivulet called the Portina, just north of Talavera. And it was rather a pyrrhic victory, and there were six, seven thousand casualties on each side in the searing heat of summer. And Guthrie's aid station was here. Can you just see a little house? And Guthrie was stationed just up here as battalion surgeon, as he now was. So, disaster was averted, and another invasion had been foiled, and Wellesley had to eventually retire back to Portugal. But here is Guthrie's battalion, running down the hill, uh, counter-attacking a French force. And this is the sort of terrain, very dry, sparse scrub. And there were, if you could imagine, 12,000 wounded lying out in those uh, scrubland with fires raging from burning wadding from the guns. And many wounded uh, took three days to get in uh, and were burnt to death. It was a very difficult time. And, of course, the wounded were taken into Talavera, where the big buildings were used as hospitals. But Guthrie, and we believe this sort of fairly newfound picture in the National Army Museum is Guthrie at Talavera, decided not to put his patients in a big hospital where contagion and mismanagement uh, and things weren't under his control. So he put all his patients from the 29th in little houses around, and he had a reprimand for that, but took no notice. He worked uh, all through the night for the next two or three nights, performing trepanation, brushing little blood clots away with a feather, somebody found him doing that, and amputating limbs far into the night. They left a good deal of the casualties for the French to capture, unfortunately, in the retirement back to Portugal. Guthrie took an interest in open penetrating chest wounds at this time too and he promoted primary closure of the open chest wounds which by and large was a good manoeuvre. But he retired from Talavera on the Tagus here going over the bridge at Ponte del Arzobispo, and marching towards Dilatozo where a hospital was set up and he criticised many of his colleagues for performing excessive numbers of amputations of the upper limb because he was becoming a very conservative surgeon and he made a few enemies here doing this and when he got down further west down here, southwest, he got to the Gaudiana Valley here and caught probably malaria and became very ill but it was noticed here that his grave line was shorter than many other surgeons which I found an amusing statistic But anyway, he was promoted staff surgeon just as he got ill and was transported to Lisbon and was absent the following year from spring to winter, at which time Wellington was ensconced behind the lines of Torres Vedras, reinvigorating the army. So Guthrie was away then and came back as the British were breaking out from Portugal to push the French out of Portugal for the third time. He was staff surgeon to the 4th Division under Lowry Cole, and was attendant at some of these sieges, the details of which don't matter. But he was galloping out and trotting around the defences one day when a French gunner decided to have a go at him and a round shot, a nine-pound round shot, whistled over his horse's rump. So he doffed his hat and vowed never to do that little escapade again. A personal assault by ordinance. Down south, they were uh, thinking of really taking the big forts on the border of Spain and Portugal but a large French force under Soult came up to Albuera, a tiny little village, and uh, assaulted it in the normal way from the front. This was a feint, and in fact Guthrie was with the 29th and stationed himself about here, and then retired into the town to work. It was a desperate firefight. It was badly managed by Marshal Beresford and in fact Wellington, this was the only battle that Wellington didn't govern during the whole Peninsula War and the casualty rates were enormous about seven to eight thousand on each side. So there was a lot of work to do and the trouble is the rain had occurred during the night and uh, all the victims of war were lying around in the damp grass, there was no wood to burn to make fires, no shelter because the roofs had been taken off for fire fuel And you can see enormous casualty rates among some units. And there were no bearers. There were four spring wagons. And they gradually evacuated, uh, seven kilometres away, 3,000 men onto Elvash nearby. Guthrie was the only senior surgeon. The others were regimental surgeons. And he worked for three weeks, 18 hours a day, and gradually managed to get things under control in this shambles. He commented here on the fact that a lot of surgeons were ligating damaged blood vessels above the wound in the vessel only and he emphasised the importance of tying below the wound as well, a very basic but important issue. This is the lovely fortified citadel at Elvash where one of the big hospitals was, taking casualties from 11 kilometres away in Badajoz. Guthrie and his men and the divisions moved up north to another border fortress called Thuidad Rodrigo and in January of 1812, after good planning, that town was taken. And this is Sir Robert Crawford, Black Bob Crawford, standing at the Lesser Breach, taking the Light Division into the fortress and a a musket ball took him across uh, his right chest and he would die a week later. A great loss to the British Army. And Guthrie had about half the surgical workload. He was consulted over Crawford and performed the post-mortem on the body. He amputated another famous soldier's arm, George Napier, and uh, consulted with Colonel Coburn, who later became Lord Seton. He again would not put his casualties into big hospitals, and he scattered them around villages some kilometres away from the citadel. And he got a, an official reprimand this time. And he said, well, I'm sorry, this is the way I do it. And so, in fact, the Quartermaster General retreated and said, well, it's on your head if things go wrong. James McGrigor arrived. The father of army medicine arrived in January at the taking of this citadel. And they had a few set twos with each other, um, McGregor and uh, Guthrie, which was probably inevitable. But, however, they settled as good friends. And MacGregor's organisation was just invaluable to the British forces. Now we had to take the southernmost border fort of Badajoz before anything more could be done. And this was an horrific assault. Uh, I won't go into the details, but the main assault by two divisions within two breaches here, but the troops actually got in at the back here. And you can see the sort of ferocity of the night fight as it was was a very tough time. The troops got over this wall. Here's an eyewitness drawing of the hand-to-hand combat scaling the wall, which gives you some idea of the unpleasantness of close combat. There were around 3,000 casualties to be treated. Guthrie had almost half of them, and they worked in a tented area near to the breaches. They didn't dare go into the town, which was out of control at that time. And he laboured away for days and days, describing many interesting cases. When Wellington came to look at the Great Breach, he actually wept silently, but he did give the Army Medical Department its first mention in the London Dispatch, the first public recognition of military surgeons in the press. A lot of them were evacuated again to Elvas. Here is the a lovely modern hotel now, but it was the main hospital uh, for the reception of the casualties. Now we could break out of Portugal and get into Spain safely and the El Alamein of the Peninsular War was the Battle of Salamanca. On the sort of, again, torrid heat of July in the plains of Lyon and in Castile, about seven miles from Salamanca, two enormous armies, the French one under Marmont, met each other. And it was a pretty severe contest. At Salamanca, the civilian help was enormous. People came out uh, miles from the city and carried wounded men back and brought food to them, and the Allies alone had over 5,000 casualties to be looked after. 13,000 admissions altogether, and it's interesting, the hospital mortality was calculated by Guthrie to be 7.5%, which is high, it's double the normal 4%, which is the normal hospital mortality. Guthrie came across some French casualties completely being ignored by the Spanish authorities and he would have none of this and he remonstrated severely with the Spanish and got them properly looked after. On August the 12th, Wellington left Salamanca, followed later by Guthrie and others, and entered Madrid in triumph. Note the sick rate in the British army. Wellington could never count on having less than a third of his men unwell, uh, certainly at the beginning and middle part of the war. One of the victims that Guthrie had to look after was his own divisional commander, Lowry Cole, which no doubt made his heart race a little bit, but he had a ball go into his chest about here and he bled severely from the subclavian artery which uh, managed to stop somehow and actually this man died of a ruptured aneurysm many years later, interestingly, but nothing to do with this wound. This is the Roman bridge across which the casualties were brought into the charming city of Salamanca for their care from the battlefield. Here, in Salamanca, Guthrie wrote up a a well-known case of a swelling of the limb due to infection and bruising, compressing the arterial blood supply down the limb and threatening its viability. So he performed a fasciotomy, as we would call it today. He cut the tissues to release the tension, and he wrote that up in The Lancet. Um, In Madrid Guthrie stayed with General Hill's division he did not go on to Burgos with the main part of the army but this shows you an operating surgeon no attempts at uh, antisepsis of course and this is Guthrie's uniform as it would have been then with a notorious black plume he was appointed brevet deputy inspector of hospitals a very senior rank and not before time. But the army had to retreat. Burgos was a disaster. The French held out and Wellington's army was sick and threatened by superior forces. So he went back all the way from the northeast of Spain right back to Portugal with a very unhappy army having just won at Salamanca. And this was the worst scrape that Wellington ever got into. And there were a lot of critics of him at this time. But he did exactly the right thing because when they got back into Portugal they reinvigorated the army. They brought up the sick and casualties and put them with their battalions, not into big hospitals. They had segregation policies, as we do now. They brought out these wooden prefabricated hospitals uh, and housed over 5,000 casualties in them. And, of course, there was increasing experience now. But it was reckoned that at the end of this difficult period, at the end of Winter 12, uh, they injected about a division back into Wellington's army. Because you have to remember that men died mostly, four out of men, uh, four out of five men who died in Wellington's army died of disease, not gunshot injuries. 20% only died from battlefield trauma. The equivalent in the Navy was 6%. So most men die of disease and accident. Guthrie was then, at the end of this time, from here he was sent down to Lisbon to take charge of the Garrison Hospital, still the main hospital station. And Wellington's thrust was now out into northeast Spain and towards France. And Guthrie missed that bit. He stayed in Lisbon, and before the campaign started in 1813, the Duke visited um, headquarters, praised Guthrie, and said he would have made him pers- his personal surgeon, but he'd just appointed a man called John Gunning. And while uh, uh, there, um, Guthrie noted that there were various discrepancies in the purveyor's reports and money had been pocketed uh, uh, illegally, and he reported the matter to the authorities. So another example of this chap's careful scrutiny. Here we have Guthrie. He wrote a paper on disarticulation at the shoulder, the incidence of tuberculosis in the Iberian Peninsula, local disease patterns, and the management of syphilis without mercury. That was the research he did while he was there. But then the army advanced. It had won the Battle of Vitoria, taken San Sebastian, taken the surrender of Pamplona, and Guthrie took charge of the hospitals in Santander. There were about 5,000 beds there. While the army prepared to go over the Pyrenees in the autumn and winter of 1813. This picture, I think, is a very nicely modern constructed picture of the assault on San Sebastian and it shows the difficulty of close-up support, medical support. This, this, again, lone medical officer being called in to treat a fallen guards officer in the breach. Guthrie at Santander, with quite a lot of work to do, decided that short splints were a complete waste of time, and he devised a splint that went from hip joint to ankle, because these short splints would not prevent rotation, deformity and shortening of a limb with a severe fracture. The army goes on to Toulouse after several more actions and in Toulouse there is an almighty battle at the end of the Peninsular War. Guthrie gets one of the two big general hospitals to command and his statistics are memorable. Um, Here we see, if you include officers, over 1,300 men admitted with severe injury, not disease, battle injury, and about 150 die. The overall mortality was 11% without blood transfusion, antibiotics, clean linen, adequate food, and a good understanding of altered physiology. Quite remarkable, really. And if you look at the results of amputation and compare them with the Crimea, very difficult to do, but this is the site of amputation. Hip joint, thigh, knee, leg, shoulder, and so forth. It's clearly related to the largeness of the joint and the magnitude of the operation. But as close as I could get it, these are mortality rates here, the... uh, Rates at the end of this war, the red bars, are certainly no worse than the green. And this was two generations of surgeon and before the advent of anaesthesia, before the Crimean War. And I think that tells you that probably surgery without these new facilities was about as good as it could get. Now, Guthrie didn't want to go to Waterloo. He was called up when the emperor returned by MacGregor and uh, by Wellington, and he refused to go, and then he changed his mind. He said, well, there are a few points I'd like to revise, and I will go back, in a private capacity, and it cost him several private patients and about £60, a lot of money. But the mayhem of Waterloo, fought on June the 18th, required uh, a large clearance of casualties to Brussels and Antwerp and Gaunt, and Guthrie arrives in Brussels, there are many buildings commandeered as hospitals, five main ones, but he arrives two weeks later. There were other civilian surgeons who came too to take an interest. He operated on only three patients because his facility was largely giving good advice to other surgeons. And the, if I can deal with this one, these are two Hanoverian soldiers. This one had persistent bleeding from a deep and inaccessible artery because the limb was so swollen. But Guthrie put that right instantly using a T-shaped incision in the calf. This man received a musket ball into his bladder and he sent him home and operated on him in the York Hospital in front of a dignified audience and he had the ball out in three minutes with a lithotomy operation. But I want to go back to Francois de Gay, a French prisoner of war who uh, was wounded with a round of case that came into his buttock and exited through his groin. It smashed off the top of his thigh bone, the femur, and left him in a parlous state, ready to die. And whilst one French soldier refused disarticulation at the hip without anaesthesia or anything else, this man agreed. And he said, well, I've got nothing to lose. And just can you imagine the magnitude of this surgery without anaesthesia or any form of relief at all? The operation took just over 20 minutes. Guthrie was assisted by two well-known local surgeons, And then he, uh, within three days, he was eating mutton chops. The blood loss was 720 mils. The man was sent home delighted, repatriated to France, um, to the, uh, 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 the Hotel de Dieu hospital, with instructions from the Prince Regent that the French government should give him a pension. And there was Guthrie's success in a French capital. What more could you want? Here he is at the end of the war, probably looking a bit washed out and longing to get back to his family, who, of course, he had seen in 1810 when he went home sick briefly. His medals are owned by a general practitioner in Birmingham, the gold Spanish star for Albuera, and eight bars to his general service medal. They fetched an awful lot of money when they went up for auction. In summary, he had described gentle vascular control of bleeding where possible, the proper control of bleeding from wounded arteries, long limb splintage, management of open chest wounds, an increased conservatism with uh, limb extirp- uh, extirpation, fasciotomy. Uh, he'd observed on many cadavers the spread, proximal spread of infection up major veins and wrote that up. His first recorded successful hip disarticulation, Baron Larry had done seven, but we don't know of any survivors, and his statistics were commendable. And so between these evocative wars of uh, 1808 and 14, he may have treated around 20,000 wounded and sick soldiers. And uh, the editor of the Lancet in the mid-19th century, Wackley, said he appeared to be as much a soldier as a surgeon. Guthrie was a man who militarised surgery, and that is something very important. And we're seeing that so successfully in Camp Bastion today. What did he do after the war? Well, it's really another hour's lecture. But he gave free lectures in this college for many years because... The British Surgical Establishment and the government would not establish a a military school of surgery, which was so wrong. Uh, And so he did this sort of really to offset that. He wrote the textbook of surgery which was used to the Crimea, for the Crimea, and the American Civil War. He founded the Westminster Royal Eye Hospital with patronage and was the youngest member of College Council Uh, um, appointed, uh, elected at the age of 39 where he caused quite a kerfuffle as you can imagine but in fact they they, they all came to love him in the end. He was appointed consulting surgeon to the Westminster in uh, 1827 and turned down a knighthood but accepted an FRS and that's typical of Guthrie really. Involved heavily in the Anatomy Act which was a joyful relief to many no doubt and president of the Royal College of Surgeons three times as Sir Bernard has said. He was also Vice President five times as well. He made big strident efforts to uh, update the museum and the library, and his charitable efforts with the sick poor of London uh, were partially successful. He tried to raise £100,000. Here he is, uh, at the age of 35, before his appointment as a consultant to the Westminster. Here he is, about five, ten years before his death, lecturing in his classical striped gown. He was feared as an examiner, he was quite robust an examiner, but he said, I never asked candidates anything I couldn't answer myself. Not sure that would have reassured me terribly, but (laughs) anyway, uh, people all got on his lecture course because you can't be examined by that person if you've been on the lecture course. But he did write this textbook, which was so important for the next 40 or 50 years, and it's still a tremendous read given the knowledge of the time. What is interesting is his publications on specialist areas, the abdomen, the chest, arteries, brain injury. But of course, this, this robust and tough chap <coughs> operating on, uh, in a primitive way on many soldiers turned into an eye surgeon. He became an ophthalmic surgeon. Amazing. And here he is, another daguerreotype. The English Larry was his um, justly appointed Nickname, although you feel that he he really should be called the English Guthrie, really. Died on his birthday, aged 71, probably of chronic chest problems. Leaving a widow, he'd married for a second time. His first wife died of cholera prematurely. He had two sons and a daughter. The two sons, one became a cleric and died early of a stroke. His other son um, succumbed to alcohol and was shooting wild beasts uh, on the... um, uh, um, west, uh, east of London thinking them wild animals and eventually he died of alcoholic cirrhosis sadly. Anyway he's buried in Kensal Green and I think these, this kindly thought I expect to pass through this world but once and if therefore there can be any kindness I can do for my fellow beings let me do it now let me not defer it or neglect it for I shall not pass this way again. What a wonderful man he was and I think it brings to mind the really quite successful and heroic efforts that are being performed by our military surgeons, many of them trained partly in this college in Afghanistan and we feel also for the victims who are not killed and suffer. But I think we should today remember Guthrie as one of Britain's great surgical heroes. Thank you very much indeed.
2: I think it's been an absolutely superb talk. I'm sure that there are questions. Mick, might I ask you, if people do ask you a question, if you could repeat back the question? Will, for them of ma- course, yeah. the No problem back. at all. So if you have any questions, mm-hmm. then
1: raise your hands. Sir? So, We've seen quite a lot of vivid illustrations of surgeons performing in the heat of battles. War. Were there any conventions of war which... ...protected the surgeon in what would otherwise appear to be quite a vulnerable situation? The question was, were there any conventions that protected the practice of medicine on the battlefield, essentially... No, not until Solferino in the mid-19th century. There were no conventions of war. Mostly, people who were hurt were left alone, but not always, as you can imagine. And it really depends on what's going on. If you're assaulting a town like Badajoz, you'll kill anything and anything in sight. And I mean that that, because the behaviour is so savage. But there were countless merciful, let alone instances and there was no convention, and medical officers were ordered to be armed. We have, in fact, in our museum, the sword of Surgeon Malin, who fought all through these wars. What, what was the equivalent rank of a surgeon in government position compared with staff officers? The question was the military rank of surgeons. They were not allowed to uh, promulgate any form of discipline by virtue of their rank. It was purely for pay structure. In fact, Wellington called the doctors the medical gentlemen. They were given the equivalent rank of captain, I'm not talking about the foot guards, line regiments, captain equivalent for pay and allowances and the assistant surgeon or mate was a lieutenant. Question was, how, uh, how much veracity there is in Cornwall's writing. I think he wrote with the uh, art of somebody who knows an awful lot of history. I think the liberties that he takes are, uh, enable him to sell his books very well, and they're quite ridiculous, some of the things. But most of it is extremely good, I have to say. He's, he's very well read. He lives in America.
2: Uh, well, that looks like that's everyone's question is done. I'd just like to say thank you again, Nick, no for an sure. absolutely superb talk. So much information. Um, and yes, the, the book is in the museum. Oh. <laughs> so well. I said I did do that, but, but, but I just have. <laughs> um, and uh, sadly, uh, Nick's talk today marks the last of our lunchtime uh, lectures for now on the theme of um, past heroes of surgery. Um, but we will be returning with more lunchtime lectures in the new year. Uh, our lectures will be starting in February. And many of these will be supporting our forthcoming exhibition, which is going to be called uh, "The Lost London's Lost Museums. Uh, so expect uh, lectures on all things that have been lost. Uh, so something to look forward to there, as well as uh, evening events. Uh, but I do hope that you've enjoyed our series of um, past heroes of sur- surgery. For those of you who had signed up for uh, Professor Alan Chapman's talk on um, the Willis Circle, and uh, which was unfortunately had to be postponed due to Chapman's ill health. I have to say, I am currently in conversation with Alan on trying to get a new date. It's looking like it'll happen in January, but anyone who's still on the list for that, I shall get in touch with you as soon as I have a date set. So thank you for your continuing patience with that one.
1: I think we ought to thank Haley and all her crew <laughs> Uh, and archivists and museum staff and everyone who contributes to this. And thank the Presidents for having the loyalty to be here, which I think is a past, present and present. Thank you very much, and thank you, Hayley, for all your efforts.